following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Writing on the passage found in Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll pick it up at verse 14. That's where we will be today. One commentator had this to say. He said, I have never met a person who took a test without wanting to know what to study, nor have I met a soldier who was willing to go into battle without his gun. And also, I have never met a pilot who wanted to lose power while still in the air. (laughs) He continues, but I have met Christians who were perfectly willing to live their lives without God's power. Why is this? Possibly because there are some who are ignorant of how to tap into God's vast resource of power. Others know about God's power, but would rather supply their own strength of supply or supply. Church, if we as followers of Christ, if we fail to plug in to the resource, the vast resource of God's power, that which He makes available to us, the results of that will spill over into how we live our lives, taking our relationship with God and turning it into nothing more than mere empty religion. Without the power of God, Christianity becomes an empty form. Just as Paul was telling Timothy, In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. Without the power of God, the joy of salvation. And in parentheses here, the joy that is to noticeably distinguish believers from unbelievers is gone. Without the power of God. The power of sin overwhelms us instead of the overwhelming power in love of our God. And life becomes one great big dreadful drag instead of something to be enjoyed. Do you want the power of God in your life? The power to conquer sin and to become victorious in this life? God's power will come only when we learn to pray. And to do that consistently and passionately. This is actually the great prayer of Paul, the apostle, for the churches in that first century. He continues to speak to us even now, doesn't he? Through God's word, through the letters that he has left us with. This is his great prayer. Speaking both to the church corporately and to the believer individually. It is considered by some to be the second most important prayer in all of the Bible. That's quite a claim, isn't it? This prayer that we'll be looking at this morning considered to be second only to the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. So I think because of its importance, wouldn't it be something if it was prayed by believers everywhere, every day? And, and, And I'm wondering, could it be that this is the reason that God even had it included into Holy Scripture for us. In Acts chapter 20, verses 36 and 37, we find the last moments that the Apostle Paul 
spent in person with the elders from the, the church at Ephesus. It's recorded for us in that 20th chapter of Acts. And what we see there is Paul dropping to his knees and praying with them, knowing that they would never see him again in this life. It lets us know that they wept loudly and in keeping with ancient Middle Eastern custom, embraced him, kissing him on the cheek. Now you got to know, the leaders from that church in Ephesus would always have that image of Paul kneeling with them in prayer captured in their memories. I mean, ingrained there. And so when Paul writes, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Several of those older recipients of the letter, you got to know where their minds went, right? To that moment that they had experienced several years earlier. The letter likely recalled that last extremely emotional meeting with the very great yet extremely humble apostle. There he knelt, bowing before God, interceding on behalf of the elders of the church in Ephesus. And now, for the second time in this letter of the church to Ephesus, Paul engages once again in spiritual warfare. He falls to his knees as he kneels before the Father for his beloved Christian friends back in the city of Ephesus. And so this passage is, is the second of two prayers that are recorded in Ephesians. The first one we've already covered and we, come, we came across it back in chapter 1, verses 15 to, through 23. And in that first prayer, the emphasis was on enlightenment. So in other words, Paul prayed in verse 18 of chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. But in this prayer here in chapter 3, it is not so much a matter of knowing, it is a matter of enablement. Not enlightenment now, but enablement, not so much a matter of knowing, but of being. Embracing what God has for us and by faith making it a vital part of our lives. Not just knowing about it up here, but actually embracing it, living it, making a part of who we are day in and day out in our lives. We were never meant to just be warehouses of information, folks. Never. But active recipients of transformation. Paul is saying, I want you to get your hands on your spiritual wealth that God's made available to realize how vast it is and start to use it. Don't just know about it. Use it. Put it into action. I think it's worth noting that both of these prayers, the one in chapter 1 and here in chapter 3, along with our, what is referred to as the other prison prayers that Paul prayed in his letters. We find them in Philippians also and Colossians. They deal with the spiritual condition of the inner person. In other words, it's not just the material needs of the body or what the wants and things of outwardly might be. He's praying for their inner spiritual condition. Obviously, I want to make sure it's clear. It's not wrong to pray for physical and material needs. Absolutely not. 
we are encouraged to do that. But the emphasis in these prayers is on the spiritual. Paul knew that if the inner person is what it ought to be, the outer person will follow suit and will be taken care of in God's time. Too many of our prayers, I think, focus only on the physical material needs and fail to lay hold of the deeper inner needs of our hearts. It would do us good, I think, to use these prayers as our own and ask God to help us deep within our lives. I think, after all, this is where the greatest needs are, those deep spiritual needs of our beings. So let's look at the prayer beginning at verse 14. Let's look at a the first couple of verses, 14 and 15, Paul writes, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. For a second time, as I've said, the first being in verse 1, Paul says, for this reason. Now you'll remember, those of you who were here when we covered the first half of chapter 3, He's about ready to go into prayer at the beginning of chapter 3, but then he, he got a little, um, I'm not going to say sidetracked. That would be wrong, right, because it's God's Word. It just, he, he started to, to go into prayer. He instead goes into a long parenthesis explaining the mystery of the church, which had not been known. You guys remember that? Nowhere in the Old Testament was the church ever, ever mentioned or prophesied. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it was never there. And so it's been a mystery. It's been now revealed to the apostle, and he made it known. So in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, then he goes into the explanation, letting us know that we are a part of this great mystery because it's the mystery of the church, and we are the church. Amen. So he's done that. Now he's back to here in verse 14 for this reason. Now he's going to do the prayer, okay? And that's what's going on here. He's transitioning from the profound theological truth of the mystery of the church to the vital reality that Paul and his readers, which includes us, as I just said, are partakers of this great mystery. But the first thing that we notice is Paul's posture. I kneel before the Father. He's bended knee. He's on his knees. The Bible nowhere commands any special posture for prayer. Are you aware of that? It doesn't. Nowhere does it demand any particular certain kind of way to pray. Abraham stood before the Lord when he prayed for Sodom, Genesis 18. And Solomon stood when he prayed to dedicate the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8. David sat before the Lord in 1 Chronicles 17 when he prayed about the future of his kingdom. And Jesus, he fell on his face when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. I think it's also interesting for us to take note of the fact that it seems that there is an emphasis in this Ephesian letter on spiritual posture. As lost sinners, we were buried in the graveyard. We saw that 
back in chapter 2, verse 1. Spiritually speaking, right? But when we trusted Christ, He raised us from the dead and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. We saw that in chapter 2 as well, verses 4 through 6. Because we were seat, are seated with Christ, we can walk so as to please Him. We're going to find that when we get to chapter 4. And we can stand against the evil one. And we will come across that in chapter 6. But the posture that links sitting with walking and with standing is the bowing of the knee. It is through prayer that we lay hold of God's riches that enable us to behave like followers of Christ and battle like warriors of Christ. Whether we actually bow our knees or not is not the important thing. Whether you pray standing, kneeling, sitting, or lying on your face, the important point is to pray. <laughs> Amen? is to pray and to do that consistently, repeatedly, with passion, as we are bowed with yielded hearts and wills to the Lord and ask Him what we need spiritually, down deep within. Now that is the important matter. That's what's vital here. Paul's prayer was addressed to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in the Bible. Prayer is typically addressed to the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit. There is a sense in which all people in general and Christians in particular share in the fatherhood of God. It's interesting that he says the family that whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. What, is, what does Paul mean by this? Paul states that the whole family in heaven and on earth is named after him, after the divine father. Interestingly enough, the word family can also be translated as fatherhood. Family and fatherhood can come from the same Greek word. Every fatherhood in heaven and on earth gets its origin and its name from the Father. He is the great, the one and only original. Amen? Every other fatherhood, or as you want, if you want to use the word family, every other fatherhood, every other family is just a copy of the original in whom we derive our name. Adam is called the Son of God in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, which is referring to His creation. It's in that chapter where Luke gives us the genealogy and he kind of works it backwards as he starts with Joseph and Mary and then ends up with Adam. Believers are the children of God, referring to rebirth, born again. In John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, it tells us, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, 
to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. All people, all that to say this, all people are not the children of God by nature. In fact, we found in back in chapter 2 of this letter, verses 2 and 3, Paul says that they, they are children, rather, of disobedience and children of wrath. As creator, God is the father of every single person. But as savior, as savior, he is only the father of those who believe. And so, in other words, there is no such thing, folks, in Scripture as the universal fatherhood of God that somehow automatically saves all people. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7, you must be born again. Amen. Let's look at Paul's request now. We pick it up at verse 16. It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul leads his prayer off asking for inner spiritual strength for his brothers and sisters. Now, please take note that this is not the when the going gets tough, the tough get going kind of power. This is not self-discipline or the power of positive thinking. This is not about self-talk or getting a grip on yourself or turning over a new leaf. This is a fundamental work of God from His Spirit. And so what does that mean? <laughs> The Greek word translated dwell is an awesome word. It is no wonder to me that Paul chooses to use it here in this passage. It's a great word. It literally means to settle down, to take up permanent residence, and to be at home. It already begs the question, is Christ at home in your heart? Paul is basically saying, my prayer is that Christ would be comfortably at home in you. And where he's comfortable and where he's at home, that person will be content and will be blessed. To have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith means for him to be at home in every single area of your heart. You got that one? Because <laughs> we all know that we can be guilty of kind of keeping him out of some areas, right? Well, here's this area here, God, and I, I'm kind of really liking it. And I know you're not real crazy about it, but I want to hang out to a little bit longer. And he's now wanted there in order for him to be completely comfortable and at home in your heart, the whole heart needs to be opened to him to come 
and do as he needs to do to transform us into the image of his son. Amen? How glorious is that? And in that sense, why would we keep him out of certain departments of our hearts? Let's read on, picking up at the rest of verse 17. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All. In the Greek, you know what all means? You've heard this before, right? It means all. <laughs> all. Now, how can you know something that surpasses knowledge? Isn't that, Paul says here, you know, <laughs> that you wouldn't know this, that that which surpasses all knowledge. How can you know that which surpasses knowledge? How can you be filled with the fullness of God when God cannot even be contained in our universe? I suggest to you that the answer lies within the phrase that we've just read here, being rooted and established in love. What is rooted and established with regards to its connection with God's love? To be rooted and established in love literally, in the meaning has having been rooted and having been founded, emphasizing the present result of a past action. I like that, don't you? The past action obviously referring to the work of Calvary. In other words, by being rooted, we will then be able to understand, comprehend the magnitude of God's overwhelming love. Rooted brings to mind the stable image of a, of a trees, of trees, a forest. Now established, also translated in some of the translations as grounded, brings to mind the solid foundation of a building. And so here it is. The tree of Calvary was rooted. The cross that came from that tree was established. Therefore, the only way I can truly know the love that surpasses knowledge is by focusing my eyes and my heart upon the cross of Calvary and seeing how wide and how long and how deep and how wide and how high the love of God really, truly is. I see the width of his love as Jesus' arms and hands are stretched out on the cross. To what length did he go? 
because he was slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 tells us that his sufferings are extended beyond anything that we could even begin to comprehend. What is the height of his love? Look up and see him on the cross and hear what he is saying. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. How deep did Jesus go? Listen as he cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had never experienced to that point a separation from the Father. He cries out in the depths of despair, anguish, and unbelievable pain, pain for our sin. The only way I can truly know that which passes knowledge is to consider, as Paul says, how wide, how long, how high, how deep the cross goes, which was rooted and established on a hill called Calvary for you and me. I'm reminded of this every time I partake of the Lord's table. And I would pray and I would just encourage, may we never ever forsake or take for granted the Lord's table. For it is there you will know that which cannot be known. It is there that you will be filled with the fullness of God. It is there that you will be rooted and established or grounded in the mystery of God's overwhelming power and love as you consider the cross. And in doing so, realizing that His love really does extend endlessly in every direction like an infinite universe whose end cannot even be reached because it's infinity. It just goes and goes and goes. Wide enough to cover anybody long enough to go beyond any barrier, high enough to take us all the way to glory and beyond, and deep enough to touch any need, any hurt, any sin. Listen to the words of a really, really old hymn. Some of you might be familiar with this. It's titled, The Love of God. I mean old, like back in the 1800s. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure. Picture with me for a moment the proverbial glass filled halfway with water. Is the glass of water half full or is it half empty? Some people would say half full, others, as you know, 
say it's half empty. Full is a matter of perspective in this case. Sadly, some Christians are content with either condition being half full or being half empty. And that's sad. Prayer gives the believer the passion needed to seek the fullness of God. The praying follower of Christ is not content with a meager, partial filling of God. Their heart's cry is, fill me up, Lord, to overflowing. And Paul is not talking here about head knowledge either. Anybody can believe and confess that God's love is beyond anything that we can imagine, but to experience it, to know it as the recipient of His mercy and grace, that's the point here. That's something that can't be understood in a merely intellectual kind of way. And so Paul prays for the Ephesians' understanding. He prays for their comprehension because apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, this kind of supernatural knowledge is impossible to possess within us. Verse 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This last two verses, the ending of this prayer, referred to by some as the doxology. A great prayer like this deserves a great ending. Would you agree? Yes. God's greatness, His power, His overwhelming love. Paul suggests as he is just so overwhelmed of it, by it in this prayer. And we can see this in the words that he writes with. He's overwhelmed by it. And hopefully, so are we. That we're not taking this for granted. That it's not just ho-hum. We're taking it for what it is. The overwhelming power and love of God being extended to you, made available to you and to me. Not to just know about, but to embrace and to live out. So he turned all of our attention, as he writes, from what we need to become to who God is and what he can do. The Greek word for immeasurably more than is, a, is known as a triple compound word. I mentioned last night that years ago, it was like in the last millennium when I was attending Bible college, I took a Greek course, Greek and Hebrew, and one of the first things I remembered was this from something from this passage right here in Ephesians chapter 3, and it has stuck with me all of these years. You see, the NIV kind of captures it, but not fully. That because it's a triple compound word, this word immeasurably actually means in the Greek, and what Paul is saying is that God can more than, more than, more than is His power. In other words, the emphasis is intentional. <laughs> he wants us to understand. 
He wants us to get, hey, this is, this is huge. This is big. Grab on to it. He wants you to. His power, His love, His grace is more than, more than, more than enough for you and for me. The inexhaustible power of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit works within us as they work their miraculous abilities in us and through us who are in the church, who are part of the mystery of the church. Such a God and only such a God is worthy. Paul lets us know of all praise and all honor and all glory forever and ever and ever. Paul's prayer began with bowing his knee before the Father of all. It ends with his looking upward and giving all glory to the Father above. In between, we are encouraged to claim the Spirit's power, to remember Christ's love, and to seek the Father's fullness, church. Don't settle for less. Don't settle. Gaining in our understanding of this overwhelming love of God, empowered to know Him better. Anybody interested in knowing Him better? I pray that is true. An old recluse who lived up in the mountains of Colorado had died. His relatives had found out and they came to collect and find and take whatever he left behind, hoping for something of value that they'd probably go and sell. So when they got there, when they arrived, it was just a broken down shack with an outhouse sitting next to it. Not much to look at. They went inside and it was not much in there either. Just an old dilapidated cot, threadbare bedroll, a real rickety table with a rickety chair right underneath a small window. A kerosene lantern as a centerpiece on the table. And his mining equipment was about all that was there. They kind of looked around, picked up a few relics, and drove off. And as they were leaving, the friend of the recluse who lived in the area as well came riding up on his mule and stopped them. He flagged them down and said, hey, would you mind, do I have your permission to go on in there and see what, if there's anything that I would like to have? They said, sure, because in their minds, there was nothing in there worth anything. And they drove off. He goes in. He went straight to that table, got down on his knees, picked up a floorboard, and began pulling out 53 years' worth of gold that had been mined. It was more than enough to build himself a palace. And as he was pulling this up, he kind of looked out the little small window and saw the dust trail from the people leaving. And he just simply said, they should have got to know him a little better. <laughs> Do you want to know and experience the power and the overwhelming love of God? Then get to know him better. And we do that here. Amen? And we do that in prayer. Whether it's on your knees or standing or sitting, 
or on your face. Get immersed in his overwhelming love. And when you do, you will know, you will experience and sustain his power for living your life that is in Christ. Church, don't settle. He didn't go to the cross so that you could live mediocre, half-hearted Christian lives. Let's go the distance he did, amen? Let's be all in he was for us. Father, we thank you for this letter that has been written by Paul and how important it has been, how impactful it has been, how influential it has been for believers down through the centuries. It continues to speak. And the reason it does is because it's your word, Lord, that passed on through Paul to us, your holy word that is alive and well. And I pray, God, that we would take it seriously, that we would take it for what it is, that it would not be ho-hum, but that it would become alive and active and powerful in our lives. That we would look to you, connect with you, and be done with settling for less and be willing to pay the price, the cost of discipleship, of getting ourselves out of the way and just following you with all that is within us. That is a decision that we will never, ever regret. May we just do it and know that we can trust you for the results. Thank you, God, for being good, for being faithful. Thank you for calling us, for loving us, for being our Father. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.